0: You're listening to Up to the Mic. If you want to learn about the struggles and triumphs of starting a business, performing for sold-out arenas, or inspiring those you lead, Up to the Mic is the show for you. Throw on some headphones and get ready to listen as our host, Vinny Hale, sits down to showcase the stories of those who deserve their stories be told. From young entrepreneurs to critically acclaimed musicians and so much more, Vinny helps compile a season of interviews that inspire listeners to follow, In the footsteps of his guest. Welcome back to another episode of Up to the Mic. If you are loving the show, please do us a favor by subscribing to the podcast on your favorite platform, leaving us a quick rating and review goes a long way in helping us produce more great episodes like this one. For today, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special guest who's joining us all the way from New Jersey. My next guest, Brian Coderna, is a certified financial planner and founder of the Coderna Financial Team named one of New Jersey's top 10 financial professionals of 2021 by NJ Biz. He also hosts a popular finance and business podcast, The Kaderna Podcast. He's a regular contributor to CNBC, Newsmax, Yahoo Finance, AARP and other media. His first book, "Millennial Millionaire," launched Kaderna as a national speaker at colleges, hospitals, corporations and financial institutions, which paved the way for his new book, "What Should I Do with My Money?" economic insights to build wealth amid chaos. He's got a Master of Science in Financial Services from the American College and a Bachelor of Science in Finance and Economics from the College of New Jersey. He enjoys staying active, having recently completed an International Ironman and Marathon. He practices Brazilian Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and loves spending time with his wife and three children. So please welcome, without further ado, my next guest, Brian Caderna. Brian, thanks for being here.
1: Yeah, happy to be here, Vinny. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. I was happy that when I reached out, we were able to put some time on the calendars. I know you've got a busy schedule. Here recently, I was scrolling through your personal social media, seeing your uh, kind of performances, not performances, but your segments on different news channels and whatnot, people having you on as a contributor. I think that's really awesome, and I'm thankful that my guests and my listeners get to hear some of those insights from you and talk about your new book and the like.
1: Yeah, without a doubt.
0: I know that one of the real mantras that we go with here and that my listeners will have probably heard me say a hundred times is that sometimes I like to explain the story behind the person. And so how did you become who you are today? And so the first question I always ask my guests is talk to me about your upbringing, where you're from, what you did growing up, and how you kind of evolved into the man you are today.
1: Yep. So in a nutshell, I was uh, born and raised in Ocean Township, New Jersey. Um, I guess what you would call middle class family, you know, my dad worked for the army. My mom was a paralegal. Uh, I had an older brother and uh, he kind of followed my dad's footsteps and in, in going in to work for the Department of Defense. I always kind of I won't say I was a rebel, but I knew that I wanted to um, kind of pave my own way, really get into you know the business world, be a, an entrepreneur of sorts and uh, have some more control over my own destiny. Uh, So growing up, you know, it was just kind of, uh, you know, simple all-American life, uh, playing sports, public school, um, nothing too crazy, I guess, really good family, good household. And I was just taught early on, you know, that nothing is given, everything is earned. Um, So you got to be able to go after and get it and, you know, work hard at whatever it is you want to do. Sports was a huge part of my life. And I I was never, you know, like a stud athlete, so I did have to work hard and, and compete to, to try and climb the, the ladder, if you will. Uh, so, those were a lot of the things early on, I think, maybe that kind of stuck out. And honestly, I wasn't huge on, on academics as far as like getting into science or math or, or English. And so, college was kind of like a question mark. And, um, you know, some of my football coaches were the business teachers in our high school and getting to, to work with them and have their classes. I was like, you know, this is something that's pretty cool. You know, I like this. I think that I, I would like to study more of this. And um, so long story short, got a good scholarship to the University of Tampa, went down there, enrolled in the business school, and eventually transferred to the college of New Jersey. Whole nother story. Um, but business was kind of like in me by that point and, uh And kind of the rest is history, you might say.
0: Well, one thing that you noted in there really stood out to me. You said work hard at whatever it is that you want to do. And then you found out that you had this you know, passion for business and it brought you into the different career paths and, or the career path that you've gone on today. But I'm curious if you have any insights for our listeners who may be a little bit younger and are still trying to figure out what that passion is for them, what it is that they want to go work hard at and what they want to do. If it's not as easy for someone to just have that instilled within them, what are some tips you suggest for maybe going and trying to explore those different passions until they find what it is that they really want to pursue?
1: Sure. Yeah, I get that question a lot. And um, two things that I would recommend. And this is what was helpful for me personally. Number one, read. All right. Uh, It's one of the easiest ways to just find out about all these different paths, all these different lives that are out there that you could pursue. You know, I feel like if if you're not reading, if you're not studying what's out there, uh, you're not going to get so far because it's just going to be by luck or happenstance that you try something and it was right or wrong. And before you know it, time's going by. And then, boom, you're, you got a wife and kids, a mortgage, and and you're kind of saddled in whatever career it is. So if, you know, you're in high school, you're in college, start reading about things that you think, I don't know, maybe I'd be interested in that. Go pick up a, a book about, you know, whoever the star is or the leader is of that industry. And then, um you know, you can kind of find out like, hey, that guy's just like me. Or, oh, man, that sounds like it's, it's putting me to sleep. So I think number one, um, you know, get out there, read some books, you know, just kind of get some experience that way without having to get the actual experience. And then the other thing I often tell people is search for excitement. So if you don't feel like you're getting excited by what you're doing or by what you're reading, then that's probably a pretty good indicator that it's not for you. And if you're getting bored, if you're like, I just I can't get up for this then run away. That That's something you don't want to get stuck kind of like on that path where every day you're just grinding and you're like, I don't even know what the heck I'm doing here. Um, so I think that's a good indicator. If, if it's something that like you can get lost in it and before you know it, it's two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning and you're just absorbed, you know, debating it or reading it, then that's something that, you know, you might, you might have a future. In.
0: I agree with that sentiment wholeheartedly because it's not every day that you're just waking up and just excited to go to work and do whatever it is that you're going to do that day. So you really have to do something that you love, whether that be for your day job, for your personal life, uh, a side hustle, a side project, a passion, whatever it may be. And then the second portion of that that I loved is uh, I'm a big reader myself, always have been. I grew up the son of an English teacher, and okay. so my mother always instilled in me from a young age the reading you know, uh, habit. And one of the things that I always loved was and still love to this day is reading about other people. And it's kind Mm -hmm. of transitioned as I've gotten older because I work in the technology field and so my reading biographies has evolved into watching documentaries on YouTube or just Googling and reading pages and pages of people that I get interested in. And I'm the type of person that still to this day kind of goes from one person to the other, meaning I'll find one idol that I'm kind of just like obsessed with for a few months at a time and I learn everything there is to know about them and depending on the scale of how large and, you know, I guess expanded their network is and their outreach is, I might be able to get in touch with some of these people. And so I try my hardest to really contact them and see if I can schedule meetings or coffee chats or whatever it is. I've gotten the chance to do it with a few. Some are on the next level. If they've got an entire book and biography written about them, a lot of times (laughs) they're on a little bit different of the scale uh, than what I operate in. But nonetheless, I appreciate the the sentiment. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do want to jump into talking about your recent books, but before I do, the last question that I really kind of just want the readers to hear to get a good perspective of, or the listeners, excuse me, is with all that you have going on in your life, all that you're juggling—the family, the business, the books, the writing, the you know um, appearances that you have—what exactly do you do in a day or a week in the life? And I know that's a little bit of a loaded question, but if you could generalize it as much as possible and just say, you know. A week or a day in the life of Brian looks like this that way we can kind of put it in perspective sure
1: yeah Um, it's a great question and and I think that's one of the things that I like about my career and kind of suits my personality is there is no like one mold where today is gonna be like yesterday and this week's gonna be like last week Um, with all the kind of things I have going on there's some kind of volatility I guess you could say to it so it's always Uh, you know, a bit of spontaneity and I get to kind of mix it up, which I love. Um, So, I mean, for instance, today uh, I had an interview this morning um, with uh, NTD television. It's like the news for Apple Plus. Um, So we had a conversation on that. Um, I was writing an article on uh, the Fed just did like their autopsy report on um, Silicon Valley Bank. So kind of how they collapsed. So I was reading through that, putting together an article that'll get picked up, you know, in various media on what exactly happened to the bank and what that means for our our whole banking system. Uh, So there's some stuff like that talking to you. And then like in between all of this, just answering just endless emails, um, lots of times for clients, you know, setting up follow up calls or annual reviews and things like that. Um, And today, I mean, Monday, I I actually don't have any client meetings, but um, ordinarily Monday to Thursday, I have, you know, maybe two to three client meetings a day. Uh, and most of those now are kind of like this, where we're we're meeting remote, um, setting up a Zoom call for 45 minutes or so, going over where they're at with their family or their business financially. Um, so there's a lot of different conversations <laughs> in any given day, which it keeps it exciting for me. I love that. And, um, you know, even though there is all of that kind of variety to the day, I do, excuse me, I do have routine, you know, where I wake up at a set time, 630 every morning, um, have a cup of coffee and I read. And I'm, I'm reading for pleasure. I'm not reading about the news of the day. I'm just kind of getting in a good mood and, you know, escaping a little bit. And then, boom, the day starts uh, every day, you know, with a wife and three kids. I'm doing like 45 minutes of dishes. And so I clean out the sink, uh, have breakfast. And then, bam, we're we're on the road, um, you know, whether it be at my office or sometimes at the home office. And then that's uh, that kind of is what my days like. And and do that Monday to Friday. And then I really try and shut it down on the weekend. You know, that's, that's family time. That's Brian time.
0: Yeah. Doing something that you love. And you have a lot of hobbies and passions that I mentioned there in the intro, some which I really resonate with. I'm a runner myself, um, oh, cool. just completed my first marathon. So I, I there think I have a little bit of time. I think I was telling my fiance not too long ago <laughs> that I was considering training for another one here pretty soon, but I'd like to go do a half marathon because after doing the full I, you know, I had the support team there and at mile 13 or, you know, just about the half mile mark or half marathon mark, I could have stopped and ended and gone and had lunch and had the rest of the day to enjoy with my friends and family. Whereas after I got done with 26, the full marathon, I just wanted someone to carry me back to the truck. I I didn't (laughs) want to really talk to anybody. Uh, My feet hurt and it was just a bad scene, but I finished nonetheless. So. Good for you, man. (laughs)
1: That's awesome. You probably did better than I did. Like when I did my first marathon, it was um, a New Year's resolution. Just totally threw it out there. And so you figure that was January 1st. You know, no history as a distance runner or endurance athlete by any stretch. And um, I just signed up for the national marathon in D.C. I remember it was March 15th. So that gave me like two and a half months to go from (laughs) really nothing to just go wing it and do this marathon. And I, I got it done, but I did pay the price. I was uh, I was really feeling it.
0: <laughs> well, that just means easy your commitment there. It's uh, I think what surprised me the most was the amount of hurt that it put on my feet. I knew that I'd be sore. I knew that I'd get some cramps in my legs, but all the little bones and muscles in my feet were what hurt the most. By the time I was finishing, by the last yeah. meal five or six miles. It was my feet that hurt the worst, and that's something that I'll be prepared for when I do it again. I'll do it (laughs) again one day, but not anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, so I know we've kind of gone back and forth here on a few different topics and bounced around, but I do want to get down to the meat of what you have to share with our listeners because you got a lot of value in what you speak on. In the finance world, the economics world, you just kind of finished talking about how you were reviewing the autopsy report of Silicon Valley Bank and so with that economics understanding and that background, talk to me about why economics is at the core of your recent book. Why are you such a big fan? And then do you people need economic literacy to have financial literacy? That's something you've spoken on before, and I'm curious to hear why you may think one or the other, what your perspective on that is.
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, economics when we kind of go back to like, you know, how did you find your path and everything, you know, what excites you? Um, a lot of people think this is kind of weird, but for me, economics was one of those subjects, uh, especially in college where the more I read about it, I was just fascinated. And the reason is I, I equate economics to being like the psychology of business. It's it, when you get into consumer behavior and why people do the things that they do, they make the decisions that they make, it's all economical in some way, shape or form. So I thought that was pretty cool. Like, especially being a history buff and, um, you know, studying wars and, and the developments of nations and then the, the conflicts between nations. is one way, shape, or form. It always came back to economics. And so that was something where I just wanted to dive deeper and deeper into that. Um, so I know not everybody's going to be as big a fan or as big an economic nerd maybe as I am. Um, but I think it's something that everybody needs to have at least a general understanding of because it really does explain the construct of the society that we live in. And so that was really the motivation behind my book, which is, you know, what should I do with my money? Um, In the subtitle, I think it drives it home, economic insights to build wealth amid chaos. So what I try and do in the book is I first off, I define wealth um, in a term that a lot of people may not totally think of where they think wealth, they think of money or your net worth. I look at wealth and the etymology of the word comes from an old English word, word wheel, uh, W-E-A-L. And that actually means well-being. So I say that's what wealth actually means. If we go back to the true definition, it's a state of well-being. So now if we start to look at economics from that lens, you know, that you have these different societies, these governments, these macro economies, but then also down to the microeconomies us, our family, our business, our community, all this interplay is everybody kind of vying for their own wealth, their own well-being. And so there's economic trade-offs to every single decision or compromise that we all make together. And so I just try and drive that home first, that whether you like it or not, you know, we're all a part of the economy, so we need to at least understand some of it. And then that's what I try and do through the book is, you know, not just make it like a, you know, an economic textbook, um, but I really try and tell a story of, you know, how, are, how did we get here as a society? You know i talk about entitlements about education about religion about the environment all these different things and how the economy is either affecting change or how those things are affecting the economy and then i think that will help people kind of understand like where they fit in and as they make decisions or they cast votes or they buy things or invest here or there um what the consequences can be to that and so i I think that that's really what i try and get out of the book and hope my readers get out of it is um, that new understanding of like, Oh, this is how it all works. I get it now. And so in just kind of like a relatively quick read, they can almost get up to speed and be really in the know from an economic standpoint.
0: I like the phrase there, the you said it was the old English term wheel. Never heard of that before. I really like that, though, because I hear a lot of times my fiance works as a counselor, and so she speaks very highly and talks pretty prominently about well-being, and that's something that she preaches and that she wants us to have as a family. And from my perspective, I'm the finance guy, work in the accounting world, I'm a CPA, I think strictly in economic terms. And so I need to learn to kind of bridge that gap, and I've started to because of her and because of you know people like you that write books about how you can bridge the two topics together and how they're more interrelated than we might think so. But Mm -hmm. the part I tend to struggle with sometimes is living it out in my everyday life. I don't necessarily factor in the well-being aspect of it or the religious aspect of it when making a purchase or making a transaction that's typically just financial in nature. I think solely about the return on the investment or the length of time I'll need to get my money back or whatever it may be. And so I think that's the portion of it where I have a little bit of disconnect. It's easy until you put it into practice. But I'm curious your thoughts on maybe transitioning from what you learn in the book into real life practice and living it out on a daily basis.
1: Sure. So in kind of in that same vein of what you were just describing, um, I really like a quote I heard from Mark Cuban. I don't know if it was his original quote, but I know I've heard him say it. And he says, I'm not concerned about return on money. I'm concerned about return on time. And so if you look at it from that standpoint, you know, like, all right, we just removed money from the equation. Now you're talking about time. Well, why is your time important to you? And it's like, well, we, we're only here on earth for a finite amount of time. So what do we get to do within that time? You know, what, what gives us joy, what makes us feel fulfilled. And those start to become kind of the things that define who we are. So when I talk about wealth or this well-being. In the introduction, I talk about a term called MICE, uh, which stands for money, ideology, compromise, and ego. And I actually got this going back to what we talked about a moment ago um, about books and trying to find your path. You know, way back it was either like right when I graduated high school or somewhere in college, I read a book on the CIA and about how they develop spies. You know, particularly moles, where they you know go overseas, essentially behind enemy lines, and they embed themselves in this terrorist organization or this criminal empire or what have you. And they said that every spy needs to learn how to use mice. And that was again, money, ideology, compromise, and ego, that those were four motives that everybody has as some sort of trigger, uh, that, that guides them and helps them make decisions. And that if you can understand somebody's mice, then and not that you're going to manipulate them, but you can understand better how to connect with them or at least have empathy with them. And so when we just look at like, you know, all the things that we think about or we make decisions on with that context, remember, money is just one part of it. All right. So, money's important. Of course, that's what's going to put food on the table. That's what's going to put a roof over our head and such. But it obviously can't buy happiness, as we've all heard. So, then we have those other three things, you know, our, our ideology, you know, what is it that's kind of like our North Star or what's guiding us every day? Compromise, you know, what are we willing to give up? Um, what are we willing to trade off? You know, where can we collaborate with others or avoid conflict? And then ego, which is, you know, that, that pride, that ego is Latin for the word I. So essentially, what is I? What, what am I? And that's where ego and that pride can make us do things that we're like, why the heck did I just do that? So I look at, you know, every decision or every subject I studied in the book through those four uh, lenses, if you will. And I think that, you know, when you think of it in that regard, uh, you can start to assign values, um, you know, to to what one party wants versus what the other party wants. And I think that's, uh, you know, all of life is some negotiation or some compromise. Um, so I think that that's where you can start to figure out, you know, where your priorities are and um, how to line them up versus whoever it is you're teaming up with or going against and and so on. So I don't know if that answered the original question. <laughs> But I, I think it was maybe somewhat relevant to wh- where we were going.
0: No, it definitely did. And I like that money, ideology, compromise, and ego. Yep. I'm going to remember that. I, I think that it resonates really well with me because it's similar to, I guess, what you'll read about in books. And I'm trying to think of uh, like the seven habits of highly effective people. One of the most famous books of self-help and self-awareness that you can ever read. And one of the most popular, I guess, uh, because of how many books it sold in the past. But I think of that sure. book specifically because of what you were just speaking on and what the what the drawbacks or what the ties between the two that I see are is that in the book and within MICE, you're able to break down at its core what it is that makes people who they are. And so when you're able to see someone for not what they're doing but why they're doing it. It then is able to have you, like you said, not manipulate, but better connect with that person. So I love that. That exactly. was that kind of struck a chord with me, and so I'm going <laughs> to use that one moving forward for sure. Yeah,
1: yeah, have have at it. And I think going back, I know you you mentioned in there like financial literacy and economic literacy. Um, that's where why I'm so you know passionate about economic literacy is I've done the financial literacy talk a thousand times uh, from high school up to businesses and companies that have brought me in. And you know, if I get on the stage and I start to talk about, hey, this is what a Roth IRA is, and this is why you might want to do a post tax contribution instead of a pre-tax, and this is how different life insurance policies work, you start to talk about that and you know, you might have some people like, Oh yeah, that's good. I, I had a question about that, or other folks that are just kind of like, All right, you know, that's that's a good bit of advice, so I'll try and keep that in mind but if you don't like you said that the why that's what's so important of like why do i need to know this why do i need to use it and a year from now when i'm like what am i doing with my investments or whatever you need to be able to go back to that why of like why i set this up and why i want to stick to this plan and to this discipline and i think that's where economics uh comes in and usually answers the question and um you know why you know, tax planning, why investment planning, why insurance, you know, why all these parts of a financial plan are important is because of what are the economic consequences of having them or not having them. And so I think that's where, you know, one can't survive without the other.
0: While we're on the topic of economics, I'd like to ask you about the current state of the economy, maybe what you fear the most or what concerns you the most about where we are as a U.S. economy or a global economy. And then maybe what might excite you the most about where we are?
1: Sure. So I try not to say that I'm afraid of anything. I try and put a positive spin on on everything because I think that there is, you know, a positive outcome to every situation. Um, But with that said, I guess maybe right here now in 2023, the biggest fears, um, number one, what some people might have, you know, just because it's so current uh, is with our banking system. Um, I, am here to say for whatever my opinion's worth, I don't think folks really need to be afraid of that. Uh, I think by and large, our banking system, uh, which is really kind of the bedrock of our economy is in pretty strong shape. Um, I think that these were, and if you read that report, I alluded to the federal reserves report on SBB. Uh, they do define it as a bit of an outlier because they were They were so concentrated in who their deposits were from, like in venture capital and tech Um, So that that bank run was almost like a a small party that was very wealthy. That was like, Hey guys, let's get out of here and go to a different party. And they just, they fled. Um, So I don't think that that can really happen all throughout the banking system that quickly. So I think we're fortunate. We have a lot of good measures and things in place to kind of take care of that. Um, Inflation was the big one last year. Of course, I think we're kind of getting that under control um, which is good. So obviously there's some pain along the way with, having to raise interest rates so quickly. Uh, But I think we've seen how we can get that under control. So the one I think, the the two I would say that do concern me, number one is geopolitical. Um, So if we look at, in particular, China, uh, you know, you think of the two superpowers, we got the US and we have China. Um, Russia, I don't think most people would consider that economy, you know, anywhere near the level of an America or a China. Um, But the fact that China and America are kind of on two totally different paths. Um, we're, we're just so, so different in us being kind of a free capitalist society. And of course, over there, you know, it's, the, it's a communist society. So very different, but their technology is growing by leaps and bounds. Um, you know, some would say that their military science is starting to actually surpass us, which is kind of frightening. Uh, if you just look at the size of the country, the size of the economy, how quickly it's been growing, Um, they're, they're in pretty good shape. Uh, And at the same token, you know, it's like, where have we been going? Are we growing by leaps and bounds, you know, compared to China? And I think if we look at the past 25 years, the answer is no. Um, So it's a little bit scary to think, you know, America's always been the lone superpower. And maybe now we're not, you know, maybe there's somebody that's right there with us. And their outlook on life is so different than what we're accustomed to over here. So, you know, I, I think that's something to be somewhat concerned about. And if you talk about, um, you know, conflict, no one ever wants to go there or think about that, but, um, God forbid there was conflict, whether it be with what's going on in Russia, Ukraine, if that were to escalate, or there's so much with, you know, Taiwan, how both China and America are so dependent on Taiwan with, you know, the microchips and all the things that they export, you know, that we're both kind of courting Taiwan, but you know, here we are two totally different, uh, societies you know and they're obviously much closer than we are and uh what if those things escalate so that's the that's the scary side that we could go off on you know doom and gloom the good thing in that i would say is that china and america's economies are so so interconnected they're our biggest customer outside of america and we are china's biggest customer all right so if you look at the trade that we have between the two countries if we were to disconnect at some point, it would be catastrophic, I think more so to them than us, but it would be very, very, very negative for both economies. So I think that bit of reliance we have on each other is kind of like, we can get angry at each other, but we can't completely fight each other because we need each other. And and that I think is the silver lining and all that. Um, The other one, which again, I could kind of go on about, but it, it deals a lot with our entitlement structure. And I talk a lot about that. That's the second chapter of my book. And um, our entitlements are just not keeping up with the population and demographics of America. And uh, if you just look at the simple inputs and outputs uh, right now, they are not in a position. They are not adding up to what can be sustainable um, without some major adjustments. So I would say those are two big threats there. China, entitlements. Uh, Both, I think, can be solved. That's why I'm not panicking at all. Um, But I think that's what needs attention.
0: Well, I like, first of all, I'll backtrack to the beginning of your response there to where you mentioned you don't like to say that there's fear or that you're fearful of much because of the fact that there's a light within everything that you can find. And I appreciate that. On a lighter note, I know that in my job and my role as a consultant, a lot of times I Advise other people of what someone told me one time, and that's when you're speaking with a client or anyone for that matter. A lot of times you want to phrase it in such a way to not worry the other person. So, as opposed to saying, What are the biggest problems that you've seen with X, Y, or Z, or a problem that we're trying to fix for you? Instead, we just kind of flip the language a little bit and we say, One of the challenges that we think we're going to be able to solution for you is blank. And I know that's a small (laughs) nuanced detail there, but it adds the same kind of level of what you're speaking to. Um,
1: yeah i think that's a great point because it's like even if below the surface you know the ducks feet are are freaking out and paddling like crazy it's like what's the benefit in showing that you know it's it's better to kind of let cooler heads heads prevail regardless
0: a hundred percent a hundred percent well i know you had a lot of good nuggets of information there and one of the ones that i want to speak to a little bit further have you speak to a little bit further is something that i've actually seen you release statements on prior to this and speak on in the book and that's whether or not people understand the true difference between socialism and capitalism, and then mm-hmm. one, if there's really one that's better than the other and maybe the reasons behind such. I know you spoke to a little bit of the political environment between China and the U.S., but just on a broad spectrum between capitalism and socialism, wanted to get your thoughts on that.
1: Sure. So – and why I really wanted to drive that home in the book is because I do think that there is a, uh, a bit of a misunderstanding. Um, And I would say that misunderstanding part of it is anecdotal where, you know, I've been out just talking with clients, doing seminars, this and that, and just my own takeaway of like, I'm not sure if they totally get what socialism means or or vice versa with capitalism. Then I saw a number of polls, um, really, this all comes up like around election time and, you know, when Bernie Sanders was coming up with the socialism platform and people fell in love with it particularly younger people, younger voters, um, really resonated, ironically, with like the oldest guy that was (laughs) running for election. Um, But in in polls, I saw that, you know, um, amidst young voters, which was going from like 18 to 25 and then 25 to 35, they had a favorable outlook on socialism and the majority were willing to actually cast a vote for a known socialist that they were. So that would tell you like, okay, millennials and Gen Z behind them, they're okay with socialism. But then it was the crazy part about it is in those same polls, they talked about like your view on entrepreneurship and different career paths and Millennials and Gen Z identified being an entrepreneur as extremely important to them, being able to have that opportunity. So it's it sort of seemed like, OK, if we're maybe not outright saying that I want to support socialism but I want the opposite of socialism. But when you say something like I favor socialism and I wanna be an entrepreneur, that just kind of sounds like we're talking out of both sides of our mouth because they're almost like two different camps. It's almost like saying, you know, I'm gonna be a vegetarian, I need to be a vegetarian, but I, I really like eating a cheeseburger every once in a while. It's like, well, they, they don't always jive. So whether that's, that's all true or not, that was at least enough motivation for me to say, let me try and kind of dispel some myths here and so that's where in the book i really just define capitalism for what it is uh which you know in its purest sense it's just free enterprise you know zero taxation uh kind of eat what you kill uh and then socialism which is the exact opposite of capitalism socialism in its purest sense would be 100 percent taxation uh, just total ownership of of production Um, you know, through this government entity or, or whatever that higher kind of decision making authority would be. Uh, And so they're, they're on two polar ends of the spectrum. And I think that we have to realize that most of your major countries out there, if we even just look at the US and China are mixed economies, you know, people view America as like the capitalist rich empire of the world of all time. But if you look at like when they they uh, review the economic index reports, economic freedom index, I think it's called, and they look at the most capitalist countries, America is something like 40 or so. We're, we're not even really that close to what would be identified as the most capitalist countries. And then if you look at, you know, a society or an economy like China, who is literally, you know, has communist in their, their name and you think of them as like a socialist you know, definition they're actually like right there with us on that economic freedom index. So it's just kind of like things aren't always as they appear. You know, you see America, purely capitalist, China, purely socialist, where in reality we both fall much more towards the middle, uh, where, you know, yeah, we are a capitalist society, but we have, you know, the highest tax revenue in the world by far. Um, you know, we, we have, you know, uh, a marginal tax system. We have all different sorts of entitlements and, you know, social safety nets and all these different things. And then over in in China, I mean, they really capitalized their economy over the past thirty years, which is what prompted so much of the explosive growth that they've had. Uh, and, you know, the billionaires galore that they have over there. So that's not just a socialist story either. Um, and so it's you know definitely a lot more meat and potatoes in the book there, but. I think it's important to at least understand the difference between the two, especially when you're going to go vote.
0: Noah, I agree with that 100%, and it opens my eyes because I never look at it in that light. It's not obviously something that I think about super often, but when you start thinking about it in the context of going to vote for someone or going to really stay in the loop with what's happening both politically and economically, you have to be able to iron out the differences between what you believe in and what you're willing (laughs) to vote for and what truly matters to you and knowing the definitions, the true definitions of what you're voting for and what they stand for kind of boils down to the root of what is capitalism? What is socialism versus communism, et cetera? So super helpful info there that I think a lot of people and a lot of our listeners would be happy to hear. So appreciate that.
1: Yeah, and that's what I, I lead off. I think it's in that chapter. I'm going off memory, but um, I believe it was Thomas Jefferson said not every difference in opinion is a difference in principle. And I think that's important. Like you and I could get into an argument together, and we could have the same outlook. But maybe you understand something a certain way. And I understand it a different way. And you and I, we both want the same outcome. But just because of the way that we talk or the way that we define one thing or the other, here we are, you know, maybe arguing about something. And then it's like, you kind of go all around in this big circle, then to kind of meet on the other side, like, You know wow we're we're both after the same thing here it's just that we kind of had a little miscommunication and so that's really what i want to try and um kind of especially in in the environment you know unfortunately with the news and stuff now that just seems so hypersensitive and people kind of screaming and yelling at each other i think we can kind of get rid of a lot of that if we just start to understand uh what it is you know that we're debating a little bit clearer
0: definitely i I appreciate like the sentiment of what you're saying because I always want to be the most informed as possible, and so being able to understand everything on a much more clear level does just that and accomplishes that goal. So I do want to pivot a little bit here. I use that phrase sure. a little too often here, but I want to transition a little bit to something that I think will be really beneficial for my listeners who are a little bit younger sometimes. And one of those things is as they may prepare for college, um, you and myself both have two degrees, so we've been to college. For an extended period of time, I'm curious what your take on the college atmosphere is, whether or not you think it's for everyone, and maybe some general advice or just general knowledge um, for students that might be considering the college route versus, the, you know, maybe not going to college.
1: Yep. So, um, I mean, and this is a little of me just kind of getting on my soapbox here, you know, just this is my own opinion on the matter, but um, I don't think college is for everyone. Uh, I think everyone can benefit from college, but it's not necessary for all paths. And what I mean by that is like if if you're going into like, let's say the STEM subjects, you know, your science, technology, engineering, math, you know, some of those things that need to be taught. You know, I need to learn how to, you know, do whatever it is as a electrical engineer before I can actually go, you know, apply for that position then, of course, you're going to have to go get that formal education. You know, college is probably going to be the quickest path for you uh, to better your career chances. But there's a lot of other avenues out there, um, whether it be in business or sales or different forms of communication, maybe law enforcement, you know, the trades, you know, there's so many other careers out there that I think that that education can be had even more efficient or more effective not necessarily in college, uh, but more actually out in the real world. So for people like that, and at least all I can really speak from is a business standpoint. You know, I went to business school at the university of Tampa and then at the college of New Jersey. Um, the goal for me was let me get out of here as fast as I can. You know, I've got four years. That's it. I don't care how many classes I have to take. I need to get it done in four years. I want to get an internship as fast as I possibly can. And then as soon as I got that internship and was kind of like in the real world, if you will, it was like, how do I get, you know, deeper immersed in this quicker? Uh, And then every day that I could do that, you know, I was learning, it it was like, now I was actually playing the game, I was out there living it, versus just kind of practicing it or watching film. And so I think that's for for young people out there, you're college students, that's really what I would encourage is like, get the most you can out of college, you know, learn, ask questions, um, enjoy that independence and have fun, you know, all that stuff where you're at that rare moment in time where it's kind of like you're an adult, but you still get to be a little bit of a kid. So enjoy it all. But then, you know, know that like the, as people say, you want to fail fast, you want to try and get out there as quick as you can and start learning like, okay, now I'm a part of the economy. I'm a part of the world. As I say in my book, you're going from being a taker to being a giver. So you get to transition into that new role now where you are a contributor to the economy, Um, you know, kind of go get your, uh, your hands dirty and learn quickly what's for you or what's not for you. And I think in most instances that on the job training is the best training. So that's, that's my two cents on college. You know, the one thing maybe that um, I'm not just not a fan of is where it's like the message of it's for everybody. If you don't go to college, good luck, you're never going to make it. And if you take kind of like a a kid that doesn't know what they want to do yet um, and you throw them in college, maybe they find their path. Or maybe they don't and now all of a sudden four years later they're like well what do i do i don't know what i want to do and oh guess what you got hundred fifty thousand dollars of student loan debt you you now found out maybe four years later i think i want to do that and you're going back to college and i think that's where a lot of people they get such like a delayed start on life and so we move the starting line way further away from them and in between we threw you know six figures of debt at them And that's the scenario that you hear about and you just – you really want to avoid that. Um, So I think we need to do a better job educating like how can we not become that story.
0: I I think it works both ways. I think – I agree with what you're saying in the sense that you you push the starting line forward and put a lot of debt in between for those people that either had a change of plans and don't want to do what they went to school for or shouldn't have really gone to school in the first place, would have been better suited to have started – Elsewhere, Right off of the bat after graduating high school and working on their trade or whatever it is for the last four or five years. But then you have that other bucket where we're doing pretty much the exact opposite. We're making careers that are highly sought after too hard to attain without advanced level degrees that are not necessarily what you need to succeed in that role. But you're also tacking on another $150,000 worth of debt, if not more, for Mm -hmm. a business degree or I know there's certain trades I wouldn't want an attorney that didn't go to law school, so that might not be the best example. But (laughs) business school specifically, that a lot of times you don't necessarily need 150 thousand dollars in debt and an MBA behind your name to go and perform at a high level in you know insert role. Sometimes you might. That's you know there are exceptions to this. I'm not saying there aren't. But the point I'm trying to make is that on the flip side of the coin is. We're also pushing those highly sought after jobs too far away for people that they just run out of steam halfway there because they're not Mm -hmm. able to go or pay for that much schooling. So it's a huge dilemma we have these days.
1: No, that's, that's spot on. I think it needs more conversation. And, you know, I talk in the book about uh, the military industrial complex and and some of the, you know, the pros and cons of that reality there. There's also kind of like uh, an educational industrial complex And when you have the careers on the back end doing exactly what you just said, saying, you know, you're the right guy for the job, Vinny, and you got all the stuff we want to see, you're going to kill it at this role. Oh, oh, by the way, you got to go get an MBA first, even though we know that right now you've proven you've got what it takes. That's just throwing an unnecessary hurdle in that instance. And it's also kind of giving a big ticket to the college. And so that's why, you know, some of those requirements I'm not a huge proponent of. Uh, I say, just leave that up to the company. It doesn't need to be like a firm metric. Um, and then also when you get into like the student loan debt forgiveness and things like that, it worries me a little bit because I see that like if if at some point we do say, you know, let's just clean the slate, you know, this trillions of dollars of student loan debt that we've built up that have propped up all these big institutions. If we wipe it out, we're almost giving a blank checkbook to these educators and to these colleges and universities to say, you know, frankly, you can charge the bill through the roof and if they can pay it, great. If they can't, we'll finance it. And if they finance it and can't pay it, don't worry, we'll we'll scrap that. And I think when you do anything like that, that just promotes moral hazard where now we're taking away you know, some of the incentives um, to, to be an efficient enterprise, which is what every college ought to be. So if we take that away and we just kind of let it go wild. um, I, I just don't think that that's a good thing. That's not a part of what like a competitive economy would be.
0: Well, Brian, I appreciate it. I, I you've provided so much great wisdom and information to us today. I do want to ask another question here. That's a little bit off topic from what we've spoken on primarily today. And it's something that I've noticed throughout our conversation. And that's, you obviously have the podcast of your, of your own, as well as multiple speaking engagements. And you're very poised as a speaker in what you say and how you say it and how you portray your ideas. And I'm curious, as opposed to doing it in writing, but as a speaker, how have you grown into being that confident and that poised as a speaker? Is it something that's always been natural? Or maybe you relate to some of our other listeners who don't have that natural ability to go and perform or speak in front of people at a high level, and you had to kind of grow into that role. Can you speak on that a little bit for us?
1: Sure. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. You know, I don't, uh, I think I still have a lot to learn and a lot to improve on, but you know, I appreciate the kind words. Um, I would say the, the biggest thing, I don't think that you're kind of born into public speaking or being like a great orator. I think it's uh practice. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, when I started out, for instance, when I came into the business as a financial advisor in 2008, you know, I was taught early on, you know, the, the phone is your hammer and you're a carpenter. So you got to get comfortable using that every single day. And I remember being in a room with like a lot of other young college kids getting started and they had like this call reluctance uh, where they were afraid to get up on the phone and dial and they'd get really nervous in the conversation or whatever. And so in the point I'm I'm making of where like practice makes perfect right before I had this internship, um, one of my buddies actually ran a a call center um, that was doing like telemarketing stuff. And so on a Christmas break one year, he's like, dude, he's like, I got this new gig as an assistant manager. Like, can you just come work there and help me out? And I was like, all right, man, like, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of my time on my break. And I went there and I remember, I mean, you got a headset on and you were just smiling and dialing for like four straight hours, which was just absolute torture. But in a way it was like such good training for then when I got into the career and you found out that you were going to be on the phone so long and so often kind of soliciting clients, talking with clients, doing customer service. Um, So it was it was just good practice. And I think it gave me a a leg up on, like, the other kids in the room there. And then as far as, like, really public speaking, which I've grown to really enjoy. uh, Again, it's just doing it. You know, the the first talk is always probably the hardest. But then once you get up there and and you kind of like, you know, what what's the worst that happens? And and if it's something that you really like, like I like talking about economics and stuff, now I look at it as almost like I'm just having a conversation with a buddy where we're debating into the night, you know, who's better, the Cowboys or the Eagles? It's no different. I'm just talking about kind of the subject matter and, and having fun with the audience, you know, whether it's on a podcast or in public. And I think the last point to that is just be prepared. You know, if, if you get, cause I've done this, I mean, we've all done it. You get up there and you were asked last minute, Hey man, can you talk about um, X, Y, and Z? And you're like, oh man, like I haven't, I know a little bit about it, but I'm no expert. And you say yes, and you find yourself up there, and you're like, oh boy, I'm I'm in over my head. And then no matter who you are, how good a speaker you are, you're going to get nervous. You're going to be unprepared. Um, so I think just being well read and, and ready for the moment also
0: makes it a lot easier. I agree with that wholeheartedly. As someone who you know, I like to continually grow, like you said, but I pride myself on being somewhat well spoken, and part of that is being prepared because I've found myself in instances numerous times, even on the podcast or uh, in my day job itself where there might be a case where I say, sure, I can hop on this client call and lead the conversation with this subject that I probably shouldn't be leading, and I get caught on the call and need someone to save the day for me. But uh, no, great advice nonetheless. I really appreciate it, Brian. Uh, I don't want to keep you all day. You've given us a lot of your time here, and we really appreciate it. I do want to ask that – If people want to find out more about you and find out more about your work, where should we point them? We can tag, uh, throw all the links in here in the description of the podcast for people to easily reference. But if you want to shout anything out, feel free to uh, let people know where they can find you.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, um, you could check out my website. It's just my full name.com. So that's Brian And that's Brian with a Y, uh, definitely check that out. I got a blog up there that you can tune into. You can sign up for my weekly newsletter. It's just called Weekly Wealthy Wisdom, uh, where I just give out a quick newsletter, You know, some tips to get off on the right foot for your week. And uh, of course, my new book, What Should I Do With My Money, is available wherever books are sold in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. Um, So I actually have a copy here. If you head on over to Amazon, check it out and um, leave a review. Feel free to uh, shoot me an email, follow me on social media, and would love to hear what you think about it.
0: All right. Well, I appreciate it, Brian. As always, if you want to find out more about Brian and I's conversation, go take a look at the feature story of Brian on our host website, www.vinnyhale.com. Don't forget to follow him on Instagram at vinny underscore hale I will see you next week. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. Let's go. Thank you. Yeah. Yo, I'm like an addict. Do I gotta have it. I ain't even playing. Got a really bad habit. If it moves, gotta grab it. Feels like a magnet. Lose won't have it till I'm doomed in a cast.